You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Joining us for today's call-in show, Brian Black. He's the executive director of the Civil Beat Law Center for the uh, Public Interest, which focuses on government transparency and open records issues. He specialized in public law at Cornell University and worked as a deputy corp counsel for the city and county of Honolulu. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and uh, Sylvia Law joins us as well. She's a healthcare law expert. She is with New York University and has been a visiting professor here at the University of Hawaii's Law School and Medical School. She divides her time between both states. Good morning, Sylvia. Good morning. I'm so glad you could join us. So you, you've been uh, you've been uh, closely tracking the activity since you've been here for most of the year. Yep. And also joining us at the table is Nick Redding. He's the executive director of the Hawaii Data Collaborative and a member of the Hawaii Pandemic Modeling Group. Good morning, Nick. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. Well, Nick, maybe we'll start out with you. Can you explain to our listeners what the Hawaii, uh, Hawaii Data Collaborative is all about? Sure. Uh, at, at the highest level, the, the Data Collaborative is about working to promote a culture of data-informed decision-making in Hawaii by making data more accessible, relevant, and meaningful. You know, we really seek to ensure that all of us can do more with data so that we can do better. So we do it, you know, in terms of, we do work at the level of data analysis and visualization. Uh, the collaboration in our name shows that we are committed to, to building collaborations uh, for more stakeholders to come together around data and then, especially in the wake of COVID, we've been really looking at systemic opportunities to kind of address the barriers uh, to, to, to getting at good access, good data and being able to work with that data in effective ways to inform how we move forward. And this Hawaii Pandemic Modeling Group, you know, how, how does that work? How does that interface with, so this, with government? Yeah, so the Hawaii Pandemic Applied Modeling Work Group, HIPAM.org, um, is a group of academic researchers, health scientists, data scientists, uh, both in academia and private sector, hospitals, et cetera, who have come together to bring their exper expertise to bear on uh, the challenges we face today around COVID. Uh, the Hawaii Data Collaborative, we were very excited about this group and got involved early on because we weren't seeing that kind of expertise elevated in the public dialogue. So the promise of HIPAM is to start to bring that awareness and that perspective to these high-level conversations that are that are bigger than, you know, that what comes uh, strictly from Department of Health, say, or the uh, IEMA, the Hawaii Emergency Management Authority, so that, you know, the, 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 the bigger considerations around how we all as a community can effectively manage, manage COVID um, are, are, are being discussed. And I think the hope is if we have good data, that it will help our lawmakers make good decisions about, you know, when it's when the time is right to open up to tourism or or when to shut down the parks and the and the shopping malls. Um, you know, Sylvia. Uh, yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, uh, Sylvia, I don't know if you want to jump in here. I mean, you have. Well, I, I, go ahead. I would like to push back a little bit on the um, I mean, I love data, but. Uh, in Hawaii, we knew in April that it was likely that trouble spots would be long-term care facilities and jails because we could look at what had happened in other places. And it took us a long time to – it's not that we didn't have that information. Um, similarly, we've known from Civil Beat for months that the um, – Pacific Islander community has rates of COVID that are just completely um, depressing uh, relative to their size in the population. And we know who these people are and we know why the rates are so high. But my point is just that in those three cases, prisons, nursing homes, and the Pacific Islanders, we knew the problem was there, but the data didn't enable us to act proactively. And Brian, your thoughts? You know, I, I agree with everyone in some respects because I think um, information is and data is key to in, in every aspect of uh, what we deal with, but particularly in a pandemic. And um, if you don't have that information, you lose the trust and confidence of the people that you are asking to do things like wear masks or do other things. And in the end, 
we can identify that there are potential hot spots, um, as, as Sylvia was saying, but at the same time, if we don't have the data, uh, there's not really any way that we can track that information or be collaborative, as, as Nick was talking about, in terms of trying to uh, identify when those problems are becoming coming to a head and um, how to solve them. So, I, I, you know, in the end, while transparency is, is key in everything that government does, right now with the pandemic, it is all that much more important. You know, you talk about, um, you know, collaboration. Uh, we did uh, talk to Josh Dambro recently. He's the uh, he's Honolulu's chief resilience officer, uh, and he serves as the executive director of the Office of Climate Change as well. Uh, uh, he says that the city is working on a wastewater project, uh, it, but it needs COVID information, uh, COVID case information by zip codes, but was rebuffed by the Department of Health twice. Here's Josh. What we're looking for is the zip code data on a daily basis of COVID positive cases on the island of Oahu. So just day by day, you know, how many residents test positive and then what is their home zip code? Don't need any personal information, names, social security numbers, anything like that. It's just where is there a positive case? Where is it on island? And then how does that correlate with the wastewater system that they're at? So we can see the results that show up at the bottom of the system how does that correlate to the number of positive cases in that area? And that way we can correlate the data and see which model works to be the most accurate predictor. And once we have that, then we can you know, try to drill down a little bit closer. So the city's looking at this as a, another tool in the toolbox. And uh, you know there have been a, a number of uh, recent stories about uh, the studies of, of wastewater, uh, most recently on college campuses and how they were able to use that data help to help uh, prevent clusters of COVID? It just sends you an early signal if folks are starting to get sick in uh, sort of a, a large trend. So the idea is, can you see a little bit earlier any big trend spikes across the population, you know, large sort of movements? The place where it's most effective is like at Arizona State University, they're monitoring the wastewater out of particular dorms or out of particular areas where a lot of people live. And that way they can see if a group of people start to be positive, they know to go in and do the actual testing for individuals. So it's kind of like an early warning system, but we got to get the data and the science right to know which warning system we need to be looking at in order to see what works for our temperature and our, you know, climate, and our water systems here. And, you know, Josh was saying that the reason that the Department of Health gave for not releasing the information about zip codes, uh, you know, was related to HIPAA and privacy. Um, I don't know, Sylvia, you want to talk about that? Uh, I find it breathtaking. I mean, uh, HIPAA was adopted when we began to develop electronic medical records to protect the privacy of individual patient information. And the people to whom it most directly applies are healthcare providers. Um, I have, I just cannot fathom how you go from a desire to protect individualized private information um, from being shared by healthcare providers to the health department not being willing to share information by zip code. It's, uh, it, it makes no sense. Um, the CDC itself is quite clear that even healthcare providers can share individualized information with um, first responders, which makes sense because it, people should know if they're um, helping a person who is, is COVID positive. Um, but what does the health department say? What's their justification? They just say HIPAA? Well, that apparently was the situation uh, when I talked to Josh, and uh, uh, I know that they have had a leadership change effective this week, and there are a lot of efforts, I think, to kind of reset uh, because there's been a lot of pressure, uh, you know, from the community to say, hey, you know, where are these metrics? Uh, you know, where's the data that we need? But, Nick, I don't know, do you want to address this, you know, because we're talking about working yeah. together. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think about this at a couple of levels, and, and one of those levels is, you know, what might be happening internally at DOH. And I do know, in speaking with some that are work, working directly on this challenge, that, that sometimes it is there, there are capacity issues internally in terms of, of good understanding of data security practices and ensuring HIPAA compliance, which can lead to a default around don't share. Right, that, that right. if there's uncertainty around what can be shared, the default is don't share to avoid making that error that could be you know, problematic for the department. So that's one level. And then the other the level that, that we think a lot about is the, the overall data strategy, and this goes back kind of with our opening conversation, which is, you know, there's data sharing in terms of just, you know, writ large volumatic data sharing, how much data is flowing out. but. The different issue is the strategy behind that. What, what is the purpose of the data sharing? And, and that shouldn't be left just to DOH, and it also should really be reflective of what do we hope to be able to do as a community. And so Josh's example with the wastewater treatment plant kind of validation data is that, which is you know how early on should we have been thinking about the role that data would play in our overall management strategy? And surveillance is, is one aspect of that, that early on there was a lot of conversations around how do we do surveillance, testing limitations and other kinds of things are going to be a problem. So what are other ways that we can get early signals of where there might be hot spots of new cases? And you know, there wasn't a lot of strategy around how can we pair up the data we have and the data flows with these other efforts, often efforts that are external to Department of Health or state response. How can the data that the Department of Health does have help those efforts so we can start to get that kind of global sense of, of where there might be outbreaks? And Brian, I have to bring you in because I think when you work for Corp Council, you were working in the area of environmental services, right? <laughs> I, I did. I did, yes. But I don't want to put you on the spot. I'm not sure what you can or can't say, but, uh, you know, on this wastewater issue, um, I don't know. It just it seems like a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you release the info? Yeah, I, I don't think it has anything to necessarily do with the wastewater aspect, but really it's the what's been a long-term uh, problem with the state and other government agencies, which is this uh, over-reliance on uh, HIPAA and other privacy laws without a real understanding of them, such that uh, and requests for data that touches on anything related to uh, health information at all uh, is met with the response HIPAA. Sometimes even if it's not even a covered entity, like a, a medical entity that would be covered by HIPAA. And that type of just default response uh, is not new to the pandemic. It's just that the pandemic has put more of a point on it. Uh, and I can give several examples of ways that it's been used in the past to delay and cause problems and just trying to get really basic de-identified information. But it's, it's all the more important now because um, we're all relying on this data uh, in order to understand what's going on. Well, if you're just joining the conversation, we're talking about access to good data during this economic and health crisis. Uh, you can join the discussion by calling 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689. Our guests today are Nick Redding of the Hawaii Data Collaborative, Sylvia Law, healthcare law professor at NYU, and Brian Black of the Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest. You know, I should mention that uh, Josh Dambro did meet with the health department late yesterday, and he says right now the state has indicated it will release some of that info weekly. It did not shut the door completely on the daily numbers. Uh, uh, here's what uh, Josh had to say about, uh, you know, the need for the data. What we're trying to do is find a very cost-effective way to monitor an entire population. So you can imagine every individual PCR test can cost $100 or more. What we're trying to do is do a test for $100 that actually looks at, you know, 100,000 people. You're not going to get the same, you know, pinpoint accuracy, but what you are going to be able to do is sort of get an indicator of how pervasive is COVID across the entire population if we can get the science right at a fraction of a cost. This is not the end all and be all. What it is is it's another way to monitor what the virus is doing on our island, and we can factor that in with multiple different tools. So this is just part of the toolkit. Honestly, you know, if we don't 
get the data to see if the actual methodology works, it, it may not be worth the effort. And, and we, we need to know that. If, if it's not, if the science doesn't bear it out, you know, then we'll move on. But 400 cities are doing this exact same thing. We're all on the edge of the envelope in terms of pioneering the science, trying to figure out what works. So we're all working on it together. And you know, this is unprecedented uh, pandemic, and we need some unprecedented science to track it and figure it out. We hope this is one of the solutions. You know, so it remains to be seen, you know, if uh, we're going to get this or the city will get the data uh, when it needs it. Uh, I think it's got, you know, about $75,000 and is working with the University of Hawaii on this project. But at some point, it's like, you know, if we don't get it, uh, they're going to move on. Um, I don't know. Nick, do you want to talk about, you know, the need to to kind of work with each other on this? Well, the need to work with each other and, and the, the timeliness of that, right? And so um, absolutely couldn't argue about the need to work together. And But what's challenging, of course, is standing up the, the data systems and practices that allow for the timeliness that, that, that some of these things require. Um, you know, most recently we're seeing that and just that, that simultaneously there there is a pivot Department of Health is working in, in a very, you know, intentional way to do more with data, more data sharing. We saw a new dashboard come from the state almost two weeks ago now, uh, et cetera. But we're doing that in the middle of a peak. I mean, now we're seeing the case numbers coming down, but that's, that's, that's a, a, a recent trend. And so it's, a, it's the cooperation, but it's also standing up the systems that allow those collaborations to happen in a timely way. If we wait until we need the connections between stakeholders and data, it's, it's too late by the time it happens. And Sylvia, you know, because we saw what happened in New York with just the explosion of cases, uh, I don't know, you know, if you were tracking, you know, certain things related to how they, they handled uh, data sharing. Um, I, I'm really not that familiar with that, though. New York was absolutely heroic in terms of, of getting tests. And so when Hawaii thinks about reopening, there's a big question of, I was a little surprised that it didn't, that, uh, that we aren't doing what a lot of states have done in terms of reopening to places that are safer, because we do have that data on a national basis, but you can only have that data if you're doing testing. And thanks to our recent test surge, uh, we've gone from being red, really, really bad in terms of, of the amount of tests that we provide to being yellow and um, on our way maybe even to green. But those states that have gone to green in terms of testing, in terms of actually dealing with the individual case counts, that's the crucial information, and, and testing is key to that. I'm not sure that's responsive. But um, but well, it's certainly an important part of the picture. Well, I, I guess uh, you know my my question has more to do with what are other places doing, you know. And Brian, I don't know how do we stack up compared to other states when it comes to transparency on this stuff. I mean, I, uh, it's hard to compare, um, but to the extent that I'm aware of uh, folks that have looked across the board. Uh, I, I have seen some that rank this as doing okay, but um, when I look at those types of things that they're measuring, um, are, are don't really seem to be getting to the point. Um, but I have there's a bunch that you know put us in the not good category. Um, so I, I, in, in general, I would say a lot of it has to be driven by uh, things that like Nick is doing, for example, and identifying. What are the data elements that are uh, important to the community and to the agencies that are working and what Josh is doing and making sure that the agencies that have that information are sharing it. And Nick, anything else you want to add to this? Well, yeah, definitely around the, the intentionality of that. So what, what data should be shared, the strategy for that. We've made progress in that way. Uh, there were conversations uh, a couple months ago at this point around, you know, the leading to lagging indicators. So recognizing that we need to start to do better on the side of, of the data that helps us understand transmission so that we're not 
uh, hyper-focused on new case counts, which tells us what was happening 7, 10, 14 days ago when people were getting it, um, and things like that. I, I will say that, you know, one thing that we look at a lot, and you know, others have, have pointed to, is uh, the covidtracking.com, which does a, a state-by-state comparison of available data. And, um, we were at a D. We've recently moved up to a C from some of the commitments that have been made recently by the state to, to share more data points. And there was a news conference yesterday. Uh, you were tracking that. Um, there's kind of a, a new team on board. Uh, thoughts on what you saw in that news conference? Sorry, is that for me? Yes, Nick. For Nick? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic uh, about this. I mean, uh, that's, that's a lot of change all at once, right? Like we've got it's, it's a new director, Department of Health. Uh, we have somebody that's just stepped in to take over contact tracing, new uh, leading lead epidemiologist. Um, there's something I don't understand very well yet, which is the La Lima Alliance um, that will be headed up by um, uh, Virginia Pressler. So there's a lot of things happening there. And what I understand um, from those that are working closely on this is that this, this data is, is – Top of conversation and a lot of the work that we're doing, um, and so uh, you know that leads to maybe me to be guardedly optimistic that, that we're going to start to turn some of this around in terms of the, the data aspects of our uh, state's response. I should also point out that we did invite the state uh, to come to the table, uh, and they uh, declined. Uh, I guess it, you know a lot of their efforts are uh, pointed toward this reset, uh, given the, the criticism yeah. of late. Um, you know, you are listening to the conversation here on public radio. Uh, you can join our roundtable talk by calling one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. Share a little aloha this September with Foodland's annual matching gift program. Your donation is matched by Foodland and the Western Union Foundation. When you're at the register of a Foodland Sack and Save or Foodland Farm store anytime this September. Remember Hawaii Public Radio and give aloha. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. Our guests today are Nick Redding of the Hawaii Data Collaborative, Brian Black of Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest, and uh, uh, Sylvia Law, healthcare law professor at NYU. And Sylvia, you uh, brought up you know the issue of the uh, just the skyrocketing cases in the Pacific Island community and and the issues with our, our elderly. Uh, we did talk to um, uh, an attorney earlier this week, uh, Lance Collins. Uh, he represents the Kokua Council, which uh, advocates for seniors. Uh, the council filed a petition last week with the, Hawaii to, with the Hawaii Supreme Court to step in on a controversy over the state's con contact tracing program. Uh, here's what Lance had to say. I think on a very fundamental level, what Kokua Council is asking the court to do is to enforce the governor's emergency proclamation against the Department of, of Health. The two sort of specific issues that that ties into is one is hiring a sufficient number of contact tracers to actually engage in contact tracing. And the other is both required under CDC guidelines and also under required under state law is to provide oral language services and translations to individuals of limited English proficiency in their primary language. Now, since that interview, the Supreme Court uh, denied the motion, but Collins says the Attorney General's office actually sent a letter saying that it would provide the information that the council had asked for. Uh, Collins says that he will refile the petition in lower in the lower court if he doesn't hear back next week. Uh, we did ask the AG's office about the timing, but have not yet heard back. But you know, it sounds like again that there, you know, there there's been. Uh, 
some give and take that uh, the state realizes that they've got to provide some of this info to help these two groups, you know, the elderly and the, uh, and the, and the Pacific Islander group. I don't know. Thoughts, Sylvia, about this? Well, I think that there are two different ideas about what the job of a contact tracer is, and the whole, probably the more dominant idea is that it's a detective that tries to get information from a positive person so that they can track down everyone that they've been in touch with, and, and people are understandably um, sometimes reluctant to share, especially contacts that they're not as proud of as they might be or whatever. Uh, but that's one idea of contact tracing. I think the, the stronger idea of contact tracing is to talk with people who are infected and figure out what their family and their community need to, in order to deal with the fact that, they, that one of their members has tested positive. And so that's, and that's in the more traditional public health view of contact tracing as a detective, that's seen as like not their job as social work, as providing support. But I think that for contact tracing to be effective, it has to be more than just detective work. It has to be providing supports that enable people who have been exposed to stop living 12 people in an apartment with one bathroom or to be able to go find a quarantine hotel or provide the kind of social work services. And in nursing homes, homes are already overstretched in terms of their ability to provide good care before COVID. Um, and they need help in order to be able to keep people safe within their and, and I wish we could see the, the health department contact tracing uh, operation begin to take on a broader mandate. Now, they might not have the capacity to do it. I think the folks who actually have the capacity to do that with respect to the uh, Pacific Islanders are the community health centers uh, that have the language cap capability, who know the folks in the community, who are trusted by the folks in the community, and, and understand that providing uh, good public health and good medical care is not just a matter of, of drugs and treatment, food and social support and, and housing. Um, so I think we need to rethink what we, what the purpose of contact tracing is and to move in a more social as opposed to detective-like direction. And I know a number of these cases have uh, broken out in public housing. I don't know, Brian, if you, you want to talk about that, you know, because there's, you know, concern about privacy? Yeah, I mean, so I think one of the most important things that uh, Lance was doing with the Cocoa Council uh, petition that he had filed was trying to get the these uh, materials translated and for interpreters to be available so that when the contact tracers are reaching out, whether it's in public housing or whether it's um, wherever it is, that they're actually communicating with the um, folks in their language or in a way that they can understand what's going on. Because if they don't, it all comes back to really understanding the process, right? And if they don't understand the process, they won't be as cooperative. Um, so I, I think that is absolutely critical uh, to addressing the needs in the pandemic. I know there have been, you know, local groups here like uh, Kokua, Kalihi Valley. Uh, you know, they're plugged into the community. Um, you know, they've been doing what they can. You know, and, and months ago, uh, we reached out to the Marshallese community out in Arkansas uh, where they were seeing an outbreak in the uh, Tyson chicken plants. Uh, and there was a whole COVID committee that they had organized, and they sprung into action. You know, just the, the community themselves uh, were trying to get the information, the good information out uh, to to their community. Uh, and I, I think we're just now starting to do that. But, uh, uh, you know, I guess 
I guess that's the benefit when you look to see what is what is happening across the country. You know, what can we learn? What could we what could we be doing? What should we be doing? And this is Nick. If if I might say something about uh, the data side of the, the contact tracing situation, is uh, the, the the issue of efficacy comes up, and, and and it certainly came up a few weeks ago when it was a really a, a hot topic around: Do we have the capacities we need to respond to the surge in cases? And that's another instance where the the, the quality of the data that's more widely available to all of us uh, plays a key role because. It's, it's through that that we can start to understand is, is the system, the contact tracing system, able to keep up? Is it staff and capacity? Is it is it staff and capacities appropriate to the evolving need and things of that sort? And the more of that that's publicly available, the more that groups who would want to step in and offer their own kinds of support and responses would be able to do so. So, for example, knowing that there might be limitations around certain languages spoken among contact tracers, et cetera. Is an important piece of information that would have benefited this broader community response. And, you know, there were calls uh, by AARP for more transparency on the COVID cases in our long-term care homes and smaller care homes. Uh, we talked to Kaylee Lopez, uh, the director of AARP Hawaii, a couple of months ago about this issue. The difference for Hawaii than perhaps some other locations is that many of our Hawaii residents are in your smaller adult residential care homes. And these aren't regulated at the federal level, they're regulated at the state level. So here in Hawaii, as an example, we have almost about enough beds for 8,400 people in those residential care, foster care homes, compared to say maybe only 4,500 in your larger nursing homes. Nursing homes are federally regulated. So the concern is the degree to which the smaller residential care homes, they can have like maybe upwards of five people uh, in some of the smaller facilities, upwards of 12 in some of the bigger ones. So the concern really is the degree to which they're being given the kind of resources and guidance to make sure kupuna are being well cared for. Now, the state just recently agreed to post uh, long-term care uh, cases, I think, once a week, like on Fridays, but ARP says uh, it doesn't really address the smaller facilities. And Sylvia, I don't know, can you talk about HIPAA when it comes to, you know, small facilities where if you divulge information that it might be uh, easy to figure out, you know, who who was sick or who died in, in, a, in a home when you've got small numbers like that? Well, HIPAA, HIPAA certainly doesn't apply to uh, patients, you know, Patients are always free to reveal who they've had contact with, and nothing in HIPAA, HIPAA prevents them from doing that. So I think that the culture, the HIPAA culture, has made sharing inf information by anyone somehow suspect, and that's just it's not what HIPAA requires. And I think the most effective contact tracers are the infected people. Now, obviously, they're, they've got other things to think about, and they're in a vulnerable position, but for the most part, people will want whatever help they can get in contacting the people who they might have inadvertently uh, infected with a virus. So um, uh, patients are not bound by HIPAA and can be empowered to... Um, help contact the people who they care about who might have been infected. Um, I don't think uh, HIPAA, HIPAA might constrain people in the care home. Overall, the fact that Hawaii relies so heavily on smaller care homes is probably um, safer from a COVID point of view just because they are smaller. But they also, uh, it's a bigger task to make sure that those homes, you know, know what are safe practices and what are procedures to take when you have somebody who's, who's positive and to provide material support to enable them to do that. I think there's also a concern, too, about access to uh, uh, equipment, you know, whether it's the protective gear um, you know, that kind of a thing. Absolutely. And testing, you know, because testing is... Test, and testing, testing, testing. And we're still not there in terms of testing. 
despite our great surge of asymptomatic people. That was wonderful, but but we still lack um, adequate testing capacity for uh, people living, especially in in crowded home situations, whether care homes or just ordinary poor people. And Avalon, which manages the uh, Veterans Care Home in Hilo, you know, they have uh, come out and shared information about the number of cases. You know, I think the headlines today, the number of fatalities is like up to 15, which is heartbreaking. Um, but there's lots of eyes right now, you know, on best practices and, and what's happening there because it's really in the best interest uh, of that facility uh, to be transparent. Brian, you want to talk about the trust <laughs> factor here? Yeah, and, and actually I, I, have, I have a, because I've seen it so often in the past, I, I am familiar with at least some of the rationales uh, behind the transparency related to HIPAA the idea being that DOH, for example, would not release information when you have a facility that is very small, uh, as, as you, um, I think Kaylee said, uh, five uh, patients, that you don't release information in those contexts because uh, with such a small facility that someone that uh, is familiar with the facility and the patients that are at the facility would be able to deduce who uh, it is that is sick with COVID, and then that would be a release of uh, protected health information. I, you know, part of the problem with that is that there are um, various exceptions to HIPAA. There are also uh, various mandatory disclosures under our public records law. Uh, when you have a uh, health and safety concerns, in this situation, for example, uh, when you have people from these facilities going to other facilities for, say, dialysis or um, for other services, and uh, you know, if not everybody is aware that there are people that are COVID positive at those facilities, then the secondary services may be uh, a source for spread. I, I, I don't, I don't think that the privacy concerns are being weighed. Uh, for the pandemic. Uh, we did have a shy caller on the line uh, who left this comment. Uh, there's mistrust with the health department because they lied about how many contact tracers they actually had. If they did release more data, how can we verify that it's true? Why trust them now? Who wants to take that? Good question. <laughs> This is I mean, Brian. I, think, I mean, I, I, I can yeah. just give a quick comment to that. I, it's, it's true that if they um, started, start releasing information, people may be skeptical. But I think over time, what's important is uh, there will be other factors that will come into play that will either support the data or not. Um, and there are other entities that are involved in a lot of the data that I think is being requested such that uh, it will be verified or not. So uh, we don't necessarily have to just outright trust DOH if they were to start releasing information. Um, there will be other, other people who can uh, help to verify that that information is accurate. You know, we I did, think that's right. Go ahead. It's, can I just say more generally, obviously HIPAA was not adopted with COVID in mind. And the lack of leadership at the federal level means that we've not had, they could have issued some kind of guidance for how HIPAA is, should be reinterpreted or uh, better understood to take account of the needs that arise in the context of a global pandemic. And apart from the little rules like the uh, ability to notify uh, EMS workers, that just has not yet happened at the federal level. So we're kind of playing in the dark. We did see the city come out to alert the public that, you know, early on one of their bus drivers tested positive and, and they did have a weekend news conference just to let bus riders know. I think they would have maybe liked to have given more information about, you know, what lines in the time so they didn't just scare everybody who was on a particular uh, route 
so that you could narrow it down. Um, but you know, there are situations. Right. It was good. It was good that they did that, and they could have said they could have assumed that they were bound by HIPAA, which they're not. <laughs> but uh, it was good that they alerted people for for obvious reasons. We do have another call on the line, Michael from Honolulu. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So what's on your mind? I'd just like to comment that I worked in mental health when mental health was involved in HIPAA before HIPAA. And I've also worked in public health. And if we could keep our minds on what the intent of all this stuff is, similar to wearing a mask, you're free to not wear a mask, but not if you're going to maybe get other people infected. So the HIPAA information... Uh, when it's shielded in terms of like these uh, sewage tests and stuff, it's kind of hard to see where HIPAA applies. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. You know, we also uh, should probably bring up the situation in schools because uh, there was a lot of back and forth with the Hawaii Teachers Association and, you know, them wanting information about positive cases with students uh, and with uh, with educators. Uh I don't know, Sylvia, if you can, you know, share any in information about uh, the, I guess what they call FERPA, the uh, Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, you know, about information that can be released or shouldn't be released. I do not know the details of that law. But one point is that um, I know we had a couple of cases early on at my school in New York, and the dean's office told us that they'd been positive people and where they had generally been, but did not reveal their names. And uh, they felt that they were bound by federal law to not reveal, or perhaps the individuals, but I know it wasn't the individuals, because when a number of us said, you know, how can people remember who they've had a chat with in the last two days uh, when you've had chats with a dozen different people? Uh, if it were me, I would want my name to be released so that people I couldn't remember having spoken with would know that they should go get a test. And um, so it's, uh, I don't know what, whether the law require, prohibits the educational organization from revealing names, but it certainly doesn't prohibit people who have tested positive from seeking to let the people who they've been in contact with know. And Brian, any thoughts about what you've been seeing uh, with the situation in the schools? I, mean, I, I haven't, um, I haven't noticed whether, I, I, my recollection is they're not consistently uh, identifying uh, schools that have COVID positive um, results. But, and I think the, the problem with that is that, again, it's similar to HIPAA. It's it's this idea of throwing out FERPA, the um, education privacy law, with the idea that uh, well, it's it's something to do with privacy of student information. We don't really we're not going to get into the details of how the law applies, but we're just going to say privacy and just not reveal the information. And again, that's, right. that's not how that law works. <laughs> um, and in particular, uh, FERPA, at least to the extent that I've I've looked at it in the past, uh, is focused on the um, the release of information where you can identify the, the student. It's focused on students, and um, and you know the types of things that I understand most people are looking for. They're not looking for the names of the students. They're looking for just information about uh, general data about like. Uh, COVID positives at particular schools, and, and FERPA, I don't, I, FERPA just doesn't apply to generalized data like that. And Sylvia, it, you sounded like you wanted to join in on something there on that point. Uh, well, I would just add that I think that the tension between public health and individual privacy has was also very powerfully influenced by our experience with HIV. And I think HIV is quite different from COVID because for obvious social reasons, 
especially 20 years ago, there were lots of people who, for whom HIV was a marker of the fact that they were uh, were gay, and that was something that was, for many people, 20 years ago, a thing to be kept secret. I think COVID is a little bit different in that we have to be careful not to take the things that were right in the context of HIV and apply them in the context of COVID. You know, I should mention that I did reach out to the uh, legislative auditor, Les Condo, who had tried to get information from both Department of Health and Department of Education. And uh, he relayed to me, and if, if I have this straight in my mind, uh, that with FERPA, I think the rules were more relaxed with the younger grades, you know, with lower education. Uh, but, you know, certainly uh, I think when when people use uh, FERPA and HIPAA and, and throw them out as, as barriers when, when really uh, it's not right, it's not accurate. Uh, and I think that's a concern that our caller had, you know. They're, they're using it as an excuse uh, when there's really no exactly. reason. Exactly. Why you can't release that info. And school administrators and hospital administrators, they train everyone on what you have to do to avoid being caught doing something wrong under HIPAA or FERPA. You know, that's, I understand why they do that, but they provide a one-sided view. Better safe than sorry. Keep everything secret. Uh, Bend over backward to avoid... uh, uh, revealing information, which is a value, but there are other values, especially in a public health crisis like this. You know, we're talking about a number of things, uh, inventive things, uh, using apps, uh, and, uh, you know, as we talk about the travel bubble and, and all this testing as as the travel restrictions uh, start to get re- relaxed. But, Brian, any, any thoughts about the use of technology uh, as we uh, try and track this? I mean, one of the benefits of technology, especially user-based technology, is that it avoids uh, government agencies and the reliance on um, government agencies to uh, facilitate things like contact tracing. If there's, I know that there are certain apps out there that are being floated for um, contact tracing apps where folks would, for the most part, um, be operating such that if they test positive, they put that information in, and people that they've been in contact with would receive notification. Um, that's, that is very inventive, and if people are comfortable with it, one of the great things about the privacy laws in general across uh, the country, the national ones and, and locally, is that uh, if you consent to the release of information, then there's no issue. Um, So I I think those can be a way to uh, thread the needle of uh, addressing the privacy concerns and uh, some of the issues related to the needs in in a pandemic setting. And Nick, what are your thoughts? Uh, The main thing I would add to that is just the technologies, I've been in many conversations around them and and um, the limiting factor, or probably more the catalyzing factor for adoption of those technologies, would need to come in large part from the state to endorse that this would be a critical part of the overall uh, response, and then to encourage the adoption and use of these apps by residents and clarity around what what control the resident would have versus what data would be released when it's released to DOH or something like that. But I think that would really help it to say, hey, download this app, participate. It's going to be really helpful to you and to your community in in the case that you end up becoming positive. I, I think that that would be a critical part of, of bringing in these technologies to the overall response strategy. We have a, a couple so of... Nick, uh, go ahead, can I ask a question? Can I ask a question about state use of apps? Um, who monitors the data? Do you know, Nick? So the, the, the apps, as I understand them, there's a couple of, of, of things about them. And one was critical, which was uh, both Apple and Google making it possible for the, uh, the apps to be able to draw down information from the phone in a certain way 
And then there's a key that health administrators within states or I guess health jurisdictions would be, someone would be assigned to have that key and be able to unlock that data from that phone. And I'm probably mixing up some of the idiosyncrasies of all of this, but it's something along those lines. So it actually, it, it is user to user in terms of the phone and what the phone is doing in the background and things like that. And the user has control, but there still is some kind of interface that needs to happen where an authority is able to access the data in a way that helps with the uh, management process. We probably only have about a minute. Yeah, but have, have about we've got about a minute and a half left. I don't know. Uh, anybody want to sum up just the what your hopes are for the future as as we uh, move through this uh, recovery phase of the pandemic? I hope our numbers uh, I mean, keep going down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is Nick. I, I just wanted to, I didn't get a chance to hop on the, the how do we trust DOH going forward conversation. And what I would just say is that um, I think that happens in a couple of ways. One, the DOH of today is different than the DOH of past. We have new leadership. Let's give this leadership a new leadership with a new, a new goal and a new vision for DOH and the role that they're playing in the COVID response. So let's give this a chance um, uh, to, to come around. And then also I think what would help DOH is um, transparency and accountability through the data that they share and the partnerships they forge in doing the work that needs to be done to manage COVID going forward. Okay. We are in the same canoe. Let's all pull together. We would like to yeah. thank our guests, uh, Sylvia Law, who's a healthcare expert with New York University, Nick Redding of the Hawaii Data Collaborative, and Brian Black with the Civil Beat Law Center for the Public Interest. And we thank you, the listener, for tuning in to today's show. What do you think about our conversation today? Record your thoughts on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, Check out the Conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.